welcome to Insurance Uncovered, the first podcast to bring you insurance news and an inside perspective from thought leaders in the property casualty insurance industry. Insurance Uncovered is produced by the National Association of Mutual Insurance Companies. Hello, everyone. I'm Kathy Imus. Thanks for tuning in. Today, we're uncovering Michigan No-Fault Reform, why this well-intentioned bill could have an unintended effect for auto policyholders. Plus, disaster readiness. The Build Strong Coalition testifies in Washington on the important lessons learned from recent storms. And preparedness made personal. NAMIC's Paul Martin shares why advocating preparedness is not only part of his job, it's a way of life. Following last-minute negotiations just before the Memorial Day weekend, Michigan lawmakers reached agreement on a landmark reform package that will dramatically change the state's no-fault auto insurance program. Once signed into law, supporters of the measure claim it will bring much-needed financial relief to Michiganders who pay the highest auto insurance rates in the country. The changes, which have the backing of Republicans, Democrats, and the governor, include personal injury protection choice, a provider-friendly fee schedule, a mandatory rate rollback for PIP lines of insurance, and a ban on insurers' use of some non-driving factors, though the use of territory as a rating factor is maintained. While NAMIC supports meaningful reform efforts, Regional Vice President Andrew Kirkner says this bill doesn't do the whole job and will be problematic for insurers. Unfortunately, those sort of good ideas like PIP choice and fee schedules really are swallowed up by the bad uh, provisions in the bill. Um, If you take the fee schedules, for example, um, you know, fee schedules for medical procedures provided is something, again, that the industry has long advocated for. But unfortunately, the fee schedule that came out uh, in the final version of the bill is far too high to realize the cost savings uh, that are necessary under the bill. Um, which brings me to the next bad idea, which is rate rollbacks uh, that are contained in the bill. The bill mandates that insurers reduce rates uh, by, a, uh, by a, a required percentage, um, theoretically tied to the cost savings that insurers will realize as a result of the bill. Unfortunately, uh, I think due in large part to lobbying uh, by other uh, outside groups, the fee schedule was set at a rate so high that really, you know, the, the, the cost savings by insurers is questionable. Um, also, the rate rollbacks contained in the bill are in place for eight years, which is really just a, a long time um, to artificially uh, establish rates, uh, especially when the legislature didn't really, you know, confer with any actuaries in setting these rate rollbacks. Um, So we're very concerned about that provision as well. As for the ban on use of non-driving factors, Kirkner says it will reverse the bill's intended effect and hamper companies' ability to lower the cost of insurance. Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer is expected to sign the bill soon. Another governor, Florida's Ron DeSantis, has officially signed into law the long-awaited assignment of benefits reform. This marks the end of a seven-year battle to stop the escalating abuse of this policyholder benefit. Taking effect on July 1st, the new law will apply to commercial and residential property insurance claims. It's expected to go a long way toward reducing the inflated claims and lawsuits that ended up being passed along to consumers. The final version of the bill did not include provisions for auto glass AOB reforms. NAMIC will continue to fight for those important consumer protections in the state's 2020 legislative session. 
The NAMIC-led Build Strong Coalition delivered testimony before a House Transportation and Infrastructure Subcommittee last week. The hearing focused on FEMA's readiness for disaster and the implementation of the Disaster Recovery Reform Act, also known as DURA. Witnesses talked about the power of pre-disaster mitigation to save lives and taxpayer dollars and also addressed the lack of progress on DURA implementation, noting that only two of the more than 50 provisions have been implemented. Build Strong Coalition Executive Director Pamela Williams shared with lawmakers her thoughts on the important lessons learned since previous disasters that should be considered for Dura implementation. So one of the most important things that we saw during the Sandy Recovery Improvement Act was a phased implementation through a lot of pilots, field testing, and there are absolutely the opportunities to do that in Dura. I know the state emergency managers, um, Build Strong Coalition, have communicated a lot of our driving principles and things that FEMA should be looking at and considering this, but they shouldn't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And there are many, many opportunities to start phasing this in and start making the meaningful changes right now. With June 1st and the start of another hurricane season just days away, NAMIC continues to advocate for important pre-disaster mitigation and preparedness. This year, forecasters are predicting 9 to 15 named storms, with up to 4 anticipated to reach Category 3 hurricane status. And when it comes to preparedness, that means getting ready now is key, according to Paul Martin, NAMIC Regional Vice President for the Southwest. On today's Unscripted, Paul tells our Chuck Jamness why he's turned disaster preparedness into a personal mission. Advocating preparedness is a big part of what NAMIC does. But for one of our regional vice presidents, the one based in Austin, Texas, uh, that is one Paul Martin, or as some call him, Prepper Paul, it's not just an advocacy um, point of view, it's, it's a way of life. He's written a couple of books, has a website, and also published a uh, video series called The Situation, each of them with a focus on preparedness. So, Paul, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, let's get to it. We've got a lot to talk about, and uh, I think really interesting information of use to both uh, our members as insurance company execs who care about preparedness and people being prepared for the next disaster, and also for those of us uh, just people um, depending on where we live, in some harm's way that we should probably personally prepare for. So, lots to talk about, but really, I'd start with you know what began, um, what got you interested in preparedness, and was there a certain event that triggered it, or how did that happen? I get asked that from time to time, and the reality is, I just think some people are predispositioned, sort of wired for this. I, it's funny because I put on these conferences uh, every year. In fact, uh, we're having our eighth annual preparedness conference that uh, I, along with a friend of mine, put on. And one year we invited a uh, professor of psychology from Trinity University down in San Antonio to come and speak to talk about preparedness and talk about mindset. And I had an ulterior motive because I wanted to pull the guy aside and say, okay, why am I wired this way? What is it? Was it a childhood experience? Was it an event? And is it something I should even be concerned about? Because, you know, at the time, you see all, there was all these doomsday prepper-type shows, and, and a lot of these people were being uh, – you could look at them and you could tell that maybe that they had some other issues in their life because they were just so obsessed right. with this subject. And I asked the guy, I said, so why am I this way? And he's like, don't worry about it. You're fine. 
and he really didn't have an answer, which I, kind of surprised me because I would have thought someone who uh, researched this and made this part of their, their academic career would have more detailed answers and, and want to know more. But he didn't seem too concerned about it. And what we've seen over time, Chuck, is that as I look at my life and things that have happened in my life, and my life's not any different, I guess, than the typical person, but I guess I've just been more aware of the fragility of the system being the grid. I'm more aware of how people respond in disasters in that generally there are a number of people who don't respond well, and it puts a burden on the first responder system. It puts a burden on the disaster response system and the disaster recovery system. And so if you're if you're in the if you watch the news and you're paying attention, uh, there are just a lot of things there. If you're if you're reading the tea leaves and putting the, the puzzle together, there's a lot of reasons that I think should motivate people to be prepared. So I could take you back to when I was four years old and a storm came through our neighborhood and, and damaged the neighborhood, or I could take you back to when I was sixteen and a neighbor's house caught on fire. My father and I went in and tried to recover some of the furniture uh, before the firefighters got there. But I suspect lots of people have stories like that. So it's challenging for me to really pinpoint what was the motivating factor in my life. Yeah. Well, it sounds like it's baked into your DNA. And, uh, you know, I think it's a good thing. And I, uh, I've read, what, what's the name of your book you published? So the second book was the, 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 the big one, and that was called Pivot Points, and that's on Amazon. And that is uh, a book about creating a culture of preparedness in America. And I'm, I'm really pleased because even FEMA now has made that one of their goals for, uh, between now and 2022 is to create a culture of preparedness in America. And I talk about it as that preparedness should be an obligation of good citizenship rather than a symptom of mental illness. So we need to be encouraging everyone to do this so that we spend less time and less money after a disaster and we can get our communities and our neighborhoods back on track. Well, I'd say that uh, I read your book a few years ago now, I think right after it came out, and uh, I found it to be not only an, uh, an interesting read, but an easy one and uh, an informative one. And it, it caused me to really think, and of course, a few conversations with you, but I, I first thought, you know, in terms of, you know, achieving some level of preparation for some disaster that, uh, you know, it's hard to tell what it might be, but uh, I remember thinking, well, can I do something to prepare? And I thought, well, of course I can. And then I thought, should I? And I really couldn't think up any good reasons why I shouldn't. I mean, the worst case is that, uh, you know, some of the uh, dried food that uh, that I bought to put aside, um, you know, would spoil in 20 years or not be needed. Uh, and so that caused me, reading your book, really, in our conversations, to... Uh, be more prepared. I'm, I think, as we'll discover as we talk a little more about uh, you and and the way you approach this subject, uh, I'm not very prepared uh, compared to to you. Uh, but let's talk about that. I know you know, for example, and you uh, represent NAMIC in the uh, Southwest region. Uh, do an excellent job uh, with our member companies and with the state legislatures and regulators and others uh, in your area, but. You also recently uh, built a house uh, in Austin, and I thought maybe uh, you could tell us a little bit about that because I know this, uh, you know, uh, preparedness was factored into how you approach building it and uh, really the house itself. So you have a name for it, is that right? That's right. Uh, my wife and I decided that uh, she needed some sort of empty nester project when our kid was getting ready to go off to college. Uh, we had purchased some land here 
in Austin, and my wife wanted to build what she's calling our final home, that our next place will be either our retirement center or uh, the cemetery. So this is the home that we have built, and we're going to leave here, live here hopefully for a long time. And when we were going through the building process, because I've done so much work uh, through NAMIC and with IBHS, I wanted to build a home that was disaster resilient. So we incorporated a number of the features but when we got the plans for the house, the first uh, plans from the architect, the first review, it, uh, I looked at the plans, and I, me, I called this place Fort Kendall. My wife's name is Kendall, and so now I refer to the home as Fort Kendall. In fact, when we moved in, my mother-in-law had a sign made that said Fort Kendall that's uh, right above the door going out to the grilling porch and to the uh, swimming pool. So we've, we've lovingly nicknamed the house that. Uh, it is uh, kind of a Mediterranean-style home, I'm told. I'm not much into this the style, Chuck. You know, uh, I just want the house to be strong and resilient, and as long as it's that, I'm fine. Uh, my wife has a much better eye for uh, style and color, and, and the, the overall design and the appearance of the house uh, are all her doing. But we, we did imp- incorporate the, the IBHS standards. We are now a gold-certified gold level for high wind and hail for IBHS. Uh, we do have a FEMA-specified uh, spec safe room, uh, which also serves as my walk-in closet, so it pulls uh, double duty. We have a generator for the entire house as well. So we've done some of those things that make the home more resilient in times of storms and power outages and things like that. Well, speaking of hail, which is a, a major peril that uh, basically everyone in Texas can be uh, subjected to, uh, what kind of roof is on uh, your house? So we have the concrete tiles, which are rated level three. You had to have either level three or level four to get the gold uh, standard for high wind and hail. Um, they are very durable. I will tell you from personal experience, they're not a lot of fun to walk on. Occasionally I'll get on the roof to check things and clean out gutters. Uh, it's a little challenging. My legs feel a little wobbly after being up there for a few minutes. But uh, the concrete tiles seem to do well. Uh, we've also put solar panels on uh, parts of the house as well to generate some of our electricity. But the, the roof, as you pointed out, we have such a problem with hail here. And NAMIC and some other uh, insurance uh, trade associations, along with our member companies, worked in 2017 to pass some meaningful hail litigation reforms because that was such a problem. So hail is one of, probably one of the, the biggest problems we have statewide here in Texas. And I tell people in Texas, we have every peril imaginable. We now have earthquakes. We have wildfires. We have floods. We have hurricanes. We have tornadoes. Uh, you name it, we have it. But hail is one of those that really affects us from the panhandle all the way down to the coast. Yeah, that is, uh, it is well known that Texas is uh, highly exposed to all kinds of natural disasters. So as you look at, uh, you know, the work you've done and the knowledge you have about preparedness, uh, how has it impacted what you do for NAMIC, for NAMIC members? Well, on a personal level, it probably makes me a bit more prepared when I travel. Um, I cover seven states. I cover Texas. I cover all the states that surround Texas, plus Arizona and Utah. One of my fears is that there will be some sort of problem that will not enable me to get back home timely. So, for example, if we had, God forbid, another 9-11 and I'm stranded somewhere and the air, the airspace system is closed, how do I get back home? So I, I start and I think I make extra preparations in case I'm stuck on the road uh, for a few days. Uh, in terms of preparing, in terms of the advocacy, um, one of the things that I, I, I like to share with people is when we talk about resiliency, um, people seem to think that it's all about spending money. You know, you use the example of buying the food and perhaps it would go to waste. 
when we think about resiliency and the steps we make for resiliency in our neighborhoods and our communities, not so much about spending money, but looking for other ways to justify the expense. So, for example, when we talk about preparedness um, in, in building a, a school, if you're building your school to a resilient level, you can use those that building and you can use that to teach kids and teach the community about resilience. You can use preparedness to teach things about STEM because that's a big topic in our schools. So what I advocate for with legislators talking about preparing for severe weather, preparing for um, wildfires, things like that, when I talk about building materials, I use that as an opportunity to educate legislators and regulators. It's not just about getting a discount on your insurance or getting a discount here or there. It's about not only making your home stronger and your community stronger, it's a way to teach our kids and our communities some basics about science. People seem to be more inclined, I think, to spend money when they can justify the expenditure on more, for more than one reason, right? So it, you talked about your food. If you thought your food was going to expire, well, you could donate that food, and someone could get the benefit of that, and you would get the tax write-off, right? So the more we find ways to make the expenditures in, in, in the community and expenditures toward resilience um, palatable to others, the more likely we're to see people and communities make those investments. Yeah. yeah I work in a soup kitchen once a month uh, with our church, and uh, they would definitely be a willing, uh, you know, organization would accept a, a donation of that freeze-dried food, which, by the way, uh, doesn't taste bad at all. You assured me of that, and I have, in fact, sampled like beef stroganoff or something, and it's uh, it's pretty good stuff. I bought the kind you said to buy, which is for our podcast listeners. There's no uh, no endorsement, no commercial endorsement or advertisement, uh, but what is it, Mountain Home, Mountain House? Mountain House, yes, that's a, a very common, uh, very popular brand. In fact, the story I like to tell is that uh, uh, in Salt Lake City, there are lots of these stores that uh, cater to people who are into preparedness. And my wife and I were vacationing there once, I have a very simple palate. My wife is a foodie um, that creates a little tension in our marriage because she's always wanted to make these fancy meals, and I kind of turn my nose up at a lot of it because I just don't have the, the, the palate for it. But we went to, and they were doing a taste test at one of these preparedness stores one night, um, and she was game to go, which really surprised me. And what I noticed was every time they would have a little station where you could taste the food, magically that food from the Mountain House product, a can of it ended up in our shopping cart. And I wasn't putting them in there. And, and my, so if my foodie wife, uh, who has, has been to France to cooking schools and cooking classes, and she's done all these cooking classes here in Austin as well, if she likes this stuff and finds it palatable, then I suspect most people would find it uh, palatable as well. Well, I certainly did, just in my one sample. i got to save the rest for when I need it down the road. But uh, So back to kind of real-life um, you know, preparedness and, and also public policy, you had a real-life example in the last couple of years. Hurricane Harvey hit. You were in Texas at the time. So, you know, I thought maybe you'd have some perspective on that, either from, you know, your own preparation for that disaster, uh, the insurance industry's response to that disaster, or even the public policy environment that uh, we've seen in the couple of years since that uh, big storm. So take your pick. So let's just briefly touch on all three. Uh, on a personal level, we had just moved into our home six months before the storm, nothing helps you test your house resilience level like a tropical storm running over it. Uh, the house was still kind of under the bumper-to-bumper -bumper warranty, so to speak, from the builder. 
having seven inches of rain and 50 mile an hour winds really showed us where the the soft spots were in the home we did find a few minor leaks here and there in the windows that the builder came out and promptly repaired uh, we use rainwater collection as our sole source of water here at the house. We're not tied to the grid for any water needs. Uh, the pump house, where it pumps the water from the tank into the house, um, the pump house roof blew off in, in the wind. And so the uh, rainwater collection system people came out and repaired that. And, in fact, they now use a different repair or different construction method for pump houses based on our experience. And I, I, apparently I don't get a, a premium or a royalty for the Paul Martin pump house lid design that was created as a result of my experience but fortunately someone else is learning and getting the benefit of our experience uh moving forward uh and then um from the industry's perspective you know our folks our industry always does a great job shows a lot of eagerness to get into these disaster areas after a disaster we held weekly or daily rather uh, meetings conference calls with the department of insurance getting things on track getting our questions answered answering their questions um, so we did a really good job. I think 95% of all auto claims were resolved within six to eight weeks. And as you can imagine, there were 400,000 or more cars that were flooded in total as a result of Hurricane Harvey. The fact that we were able to resolve all those claims as fast as we did, I think, says a lot for our industry. From a public policy perspective, what's been really interesting, Chuck, this legislative session here in Texas, which ends in about six or seven days from now, are the number of bills devoted to disaster resiliency, disaster recovery, and disaster preparedness. Uh, I did a bill search the other night just for fun. There are well over 200 bills in the system that deal with everything from creating um, task forces in, within the state to, just, to uh, improve the ability of faith-based organizations to respond to a disaster, to improving emergency radio communication during a disaster, uh, to finding funding for making communities more disaster resilient. One of my goals when the session is over is to do a, another run and see how many of those bills pass because uh, Hurricane Harvey really bumped preparedness and resiliency up to the forefront, much more so than Hurricane Ike did. Um, and I'm not sure what the difference was, but I think people over time, because you know, Hurricane Ike was 2008, I think over the last 10 to 12 years, we're seeing more and more people get interested in community preparedness and disaster resilience. So I'm pleased that our state is making those steps uh, from a public policy standpoint to get better prepared as well. Well, you know, at the federal level, we have uh, worked with Congress uh, to pass uh, legislations, now they've been signed into law uh, last year, that uh, will help the federal government uh, do a better job preparing in advance of the next uh, natural disaster. Um, that's now starting to trickle down and work through the states as well. I know you've been involved with that, but I think as a final question, um, you know, I guess I'd ask what advice do you have for people or for policymakers when it comes to the topics of uh, preparedness uh, and or resiliency? Well, for people, I know a lot of people think you have to have uh, a bug out retreat and a pickup truck jacked up with big tires and, and, you know, 10 years worth of food. I tell people if you just do what FEMA recommends, if you go to um, their website and I think it's ready.gov, if you go to their website and follow their recommendations, you are going to be prepared for 90% plus of all the possible disasters that could possibly affect you. 
So you don't, it doesn't require this massive outlay. Don't let that discourage you, that you don't know what to buy and you don't have the money to do it. You'd be amazed at how much you can get prepared just with a few extra dollars buying stuff at your local grocery store and your local your discount retailer. From a community perspective and from a legislative perspective, uh, we have to start looking at resilience, not just in a matter of keeping us uh, and saving money, but also about saving lives. You know, one of the bills I testified on uh, on Friday here in Texas was what we're calling the CPR bill. Uh, my mother had a heart attack at my house uh, two and a half years ago. Uh, I did CPR on her, kept her alive. Uh, the paramedics came. They had a pulse before she left the house. Uh, one of our uh, uh, representatives in the state rep- state house here, uh, Tom Oliverson, he's a uh, state representative from the Houston area. He is a physician. He is the vice chair of the House Insurance Committee. He's very active at Incoil and has a leader- leadership position at Incoil. Uh, his own father had a heart attack in the Birmingham airport earlier this year, and the person standing next to him was a nurse. She did CPR, used the AED, and revived him as well. Prior to that, I had sent them a bill that would make uh, driver's licenses and license to carry of, of handguns free for people who have CPR certification. Uh, and Dr. Allerson decided he was going to run with that bill. Uh, we just had the hearing. In, it's already passed the House. Uh, we had the hearing in the Senate. And what's important about this, Chuck, is that when legislators see us and regulators see us advocating for things other than just basic insurance and market freedom, the stuff that we do every day, when they see us advocating for public safety, public health, car seats, distracted driving, these are things that fit within that, in my opinion, fit within that resilience paradigm. And when they see that, they see that we're not just doing this advocacy as a way to save some big insurance company money, that we're really getting into some of those values that we talk about at NAMIC, particularly for mutual companies. And that is, this is about people, this is about uh, communities, um, this is about protecting a way of life. So we have to start thinking about preparedness and resiliency more than just saving insurance companies money and really focus on the benefits to the community and to the policyholders and to the citizens uh, of those uh, communities and states that we serve. Well, I don't think I can sum it up any better than that in terms of uh, our policy, our motivation, your work, both uh, you know in the policy area, uh, in the states where you're uh, our regional vice president, and then, of course, in your personal uh, life where you've uh, taught a lot of people, including me, about uh, how to be better prepared for the next disaster. So, Paul, thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity. On the next Unscripted, Chuck talks with PEMCO President and CEO Stan McNaughton about the importance of customer service and the unique way his employees have learned to stay connected to their customers. And that's a wrap for this episode of Insurance Uncovered. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast, and we hope you'll keep tuning in as we return with more insurance news and information on June 12th. If you have a topic or issue you'd like us to uncover, don't hesitate to let us know. You can send us an email at uncovered at Until next time, I'm Kathy Imus. Have a great day.